Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 159 for the first half of March 2017. The topic that I'm going to be interviewing about today is what is, or what should be, or what may be, or what might be, or what do some people think is the definition of the word planet. Kirby Runyon is a graduating PhD candidate in planetary geology at Johns Hopkins University, where he researches wind-blown geology on Mars and impact cratering on planets such as the Moon. He is a science team affiliate on the New Horizons mission to the double planet Pluto-Charon and the Kuiper Belt, and is passionate about engaging the general public in the passion beauty, and joy of space exploration and promoting scientific literacy among non-scientists. So with that said, welcome to the podcast, Kirby. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. So I actually have never addressed this topic on the podcast, sort of the, um, the semantics of what is or is not a planet, and Given that you've been in the news a lot uh, due to an mm-hmm. abstract that you wrote with a couple other New Horizons science team members uh, for the upcoming Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, um, I thought I would just have you say what's going on with this lately and why has this been in the news and perhaps why did you write this abstract? Yeah, well... In a fit of creative passion, I suppose, over uh, the Christmas holiday with my family, uh, I, I got up one morning and I basically banged out this this conference abstract in almost one sitting. Um, for some reason, the definition of planet is something that I care a lot about, and I think it has a lot to do with how the general public, the non-scientist public, views the solar system. Um for some reason, this abstract has garnered a lot of attention in the media. A lot of news outlets picked up on it. A lot of them have interviewed me. Um, and so there's just a lot of public or there's a lot of public interest in, in, in planetary status. And I think part of that is because people want Pluto to be a planet, although having Pluto be a planet is not my only motivation at all. Um, but there's an emotional attachment to that. And I think that emotional attachment is entirely appropriate. Um, because as human beings, we're emotional, and, and that can drive a lot of our decision-making for good or ill. And uh, people, so people's emotional attachment to the definition of planet seems to have drawn a lot of uh, media attention as well as professional attention. I would guess a lot of listeners are familiar with the media attention because, I mean, it's shown up in Space.com, Universe Today, uh, even other non-necessarily astronomy sites such as mm-hmm. uh, Engadget, I think, and uh, other places. I mean, Ars Technica. Uh, perhaps you could give us an idea of how far this has reached. What kinds of outlets have you been interviewed on? Yeah, so I was interviewed by a Spanish newspaper uh, from Spain. Uh, and I have been on CBC Radio in Canada on their program As It Happens. Uh, I've I, I've been on uh, mostly tech or science-oriented websites, not just space, but certainly space, space.com, Universe Today, uh, the website Inverse.com, um, Seeker.com. Uh, those are some of the, the main outlets I've been on. Um, Johns Hopkins University is also doing a press release on this topic, uh, and uh, I'm scheduled to do an interview with the Washington Post on Monday. 
well, if nothing else, congratulations on all the attention. I mean, especially as someone who's uh, just graduating, this must be a nice uh, feather in the I, the cap of well, the cap <laughs> in the cap. Uh, I, I it certainly is, and I'm, I'm having fun with it. Let's get right down to it in terms of what were you talking about in the abstract? What did you say, and what do you think a planet is? So if you'd like, I'll, I can read the actual definition, uh, and I'll preface it by saying this is the perspective of a planetary geologist who is interested in a body's intrinsic properties and not its extrinsic properties. And so okay. the definition that we've come up with is that a planet is a substellar mass body that has never undergone nuclear fusion and that has sufficient self-gravitation to assume a spheroidal shape adequately described by a triaxial ellipsoid regardless of its orbital parameters. So I can break that down a little bit. Uh, never undergone nuclear fusion, so that excludes uh, stellar remnants such as white dwarfs and neutron stars, which are not currently fusing uh, any any elements in their cores, but used to. So uh, very dense stellar objects like that are not planets. Um, we also want a definition that captures the roundness of planets, and so that's where uh, the phrase has sufficient self-gravitation to assume a spheroidal shape adequately described by a triaxial ellipsoid. What that bit is really getting at is that the body needs to be in hydrostatic equilibrium, even if there's some deformation due to spinning and from uh, being tidally deformed by, say, an orbiting moon. And okay. so, yes. So, like, Earth is actually tidally dis- – um, exactly what you just said. It, it has an effect of Earth's moon going around it, and uh, part of the surface is uplifted a little bit, although that's much more obvious on water. Uh, and right. the moon also tidally deforms by, what, about maybe 20, 30 meters due to Earth's tidal effects? Yeah, it's, it's not by a lot, um, but the moon would be a triaxial ellipsoid. The dwarf, the, the planet, dwarf planet, uh, Haumea in the Kuiper Belt, uh, is a, at least a biaxial ellipsoid because it's, it's such a fast rotator. It's really squashed at the poles and extended at the uh, equator, um, as is the planet Saturn although I think Haumea is much more visually striking. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the role of gravity is still important in controlling the shape of the body in terms of overcoming the strength of the material that the body is made out of to make it spheroidal. And I, I recall, um, and Stuart, you probably remember this being on the New Horizons team with me, uh, but as uh, the spacecraft was approaching Pluto and we had various teams using various measurement uh, techniques to measure the actual size and shape of Pluto, we were looking for deviation from perfect sphericity Yes. Because Pluto and Charon are both tidally locked to each other, one would think that um, that both of them would be very clearly triaxial ellipsoidal. Um, however, uh, my understanding is we saw that not to be the case, and we didn't see any significant deviation um, from sphericity for at least Pluto. Yeah, so, which was really weird. It, it is weird, and, and that's a geological conundrum. But nevertheless, we were looking for that because it was, it was expected that Pluto would be um, uh, tidally deformed by Charon. With that being your definition, the implication then, and perhaps that's what been, what's been making the news a lot, is that over 100 bodies in the solar system under your definition would be a planet. That's correct. So you don't have any issue with that? <laughs> None whatsoever. I mean, Stuart, how many stars are there in the galaxy? 400 uh, billion, two, something I was like say that? Two to 300 billion, yeah. Sure. Uh, why, do, why do we need small numbers of things? Um, I, I think the, the implicit answer is, well, because school children need to be able to memorize all of them. And I say well, that's, that's Mike nonsense. Brown's argument. Well, sure. That's some people's arguments. Um, and, and that argument has, has promulgated to the general population. Like, well, of course, people should be able to memorize the number of planets there are. 
I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it comes from bad science pedagogy or of decades of bad science pedagogy saying, hey, just memorize things. Um, you know, with the periodic table of the element, there's 92 naturally occurring elements, yet no one except super nerds, uh, and, and that only for the sake of being nerdy, memorize the entire chart. Instead, you learn the natural organization of it, realizing that it's organized by atomic number, which is uh, a direct correlation to the number of protons in the nucleus, which defines the element, which in turn defines the electron arrangement, which in turn defines the chemical properties. And so understanding that natural organization helps you understand a given element on the periodic table, even if you've never memorized it or its location on the table. Similarly, understanding the natural organization of the solar system from the sun outward, uh, coupled with an understanding of how planets form in the first place, given the uh, available materials at the time of planet formation, can help you understand the types of planets you would expect at different distances from the sun. For instance, heavier elements tend to form closer to the sun, as you know. Uh, and so Mercury, for instance, has a giant iron and probably magnesium-rich uh, core, or sorry, nickel-rich core, um, because those are the elements or, or, or substances that, that uh, are able to be close to the sun during planetary formation. Uh, most of Pluto and other dwarf planets in the Kuiper Belt uh, are made out of water ice and other frozen species like nitrogen and carbon monoxide and methane. And that's because those things uh, aren't stable near the sun. And so, and also, likewise, you don't have, you weren't able to concentrate a lot of the heavier elements out of the region of the Kuiper Belt during planetary formation. And so, uh, nature just made planets out of whatever materials were around it. And so they tend to be icy. Uh, and, and so, you know, if people want to memorize planets, I don't know, stick to 10 or 20 that you think are really interesting, but don't feel like you've gained a deeper understanding of the universe just because you've memorized an order of names. So um, I have a, a couple questions based on that. Sure. Uh, one of them, since you were just talking about the elemental makeup uh, where stuff is rocky closer to the sun and icy farther out, uh, do you have any issue with the idea that different materials are going to go into hydrostatic equilibrium at different sizes? So, for example, right. uh, if you have – I don't know the numbers. I'm just going to make up a round number here. Uh, so if you have, say, uh, a 100-kilometer diameter-ish – because we're going to say triaxial-ish mm -hmm. uh, object that is made of, uh, say, rock, it might not be in hydrostatic equilibrium, but if it were made of ice, it would be. And so it right. almost seems a little bit of arbitrary there. I mean, it's not arbitrary in the statement of hydrostatic equilibrium, but we then have to get into that, well, is this rocky or icy, and does that matter? And, and Right. Like that. So uh, you, break, you bring up a really great point. And in fact, Enceladus, which is round, and I would consider Enceladus to be a, a planet, a moon planet of Saturn, and the asteroid Vesta are very nearly the same size. Uh, Enceladus is largely water and water ice, whereas Vesta is largely rock and metal. Mm -hmm. And Enceladus is round and Vesta is not. And you know, this is a little bit of uh, slop and uncertainty in this definition, and I'm okay with that. I really am. I mean, nature naturally is messy. Uh, we, have a, we have a saying in geology, nature's messy. Um, and as humans, we like to organize things into categories, but nature transcends categorization. Nevertheless, categories are a useful way to begin to understand some of the universe. Um, and so I personally am okay with a little bit of uncertainty uh, given um, 
the, the makeup of, of different things and whether uh, a rocky versus an icy watery body would be in hydrostatic equilibrium or not. Um, I'm okay with that personally. I can see where some people might have discomfort with that. And certainly at the edges of the definition, there's going to be some interpretation and you may have to take it on a case by case basis. And that's okay. Um, the word planet is a very utilitarian word and it's, it's, we're allowed to have that uncertainty at the edges of where things aren't quite clear. One thing we don't directly address is the issue of brown dwarfs. Are they planets or stars? Mm-hmm. I'm not really qualified to address that, but I can see where they're, where on a case by case basis, you, you might consider one body a, a, a large planet versus another one being a, a small star or a brown dwarf. And, and that a bit of uncertainty is, is, is interesting and fun. And I would say it's okay. Okay. So you then don't have an issue with Enceladus being a planet, but I guess Vesta not. Correct. All right. Um, it just seems a little weird to me, I guess. I know. I, I, it, it depends on your personal preference. I'm okay with a little bit of uncertainty and mystery, if you will, all realizing right. that nature isn't easily categorizable all the time. Yeah, well, I, I guess then that leads to another question of if nature isn't categorizable, uh, which I completely agree with, at least all the time, there are obvious examples. The sun is a star. We are not. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, why go through this effort? Even uh, if you can't categorize some things because it is inherently messy and there is a continuum. I mean, that's sort of my perspective on the whole thing, which is why uh, one of the reasons why I I asked that I not be on the abstract is I just I I almost think it's an exercise in futility in just Mm -hmm. the sense that there is this continuum and I almost personally don't care what we call what. But because of this continuum, it really does defy sometimes that easy categorization that a lot of us would like to have, but can't because, as you said, nature is messy. Yeah. You know, we're asking, why do we care? Why, why bother go through this? Is it an exercise in futility to do this? I don't think it is. Even though nature defies 100% categorization, nature is still amenable to maybe 80% classification. And as our boss, Alan Stern, says, 80% of something is better than 100% of nothing. <laughs> I think um, that's more in respect to getting emissions. You know, it's, it's better I, I to go there but than I, But I think it's not. applicable. You know, if you can take the vast majority of objects and easily categorize them as planets, great. Yeah, there's going to be some borderline cases, the 10 or 20% of borderline cases. But that just makes this even more fun. Um, I still don't think it's an exercise in futility. It's, it's useful scientific nomenclature. Um, to be able to categorize as much as we can, recognizing that, recognizing and being comfortable with the fact that uh, it's not going to be 100% successful, but it will be mostly successful. For instance, um, uh, I, I, to make a biological example, uh, both DNA and RNA encode genetic information. As you go into an RNA or DNA molecule, you get down to individual genes. At what point? Does a gene stop being a gene and it just becomes adenosine, uh, you know, um, A, C, T, and G, yeah. the different uh, um, letters in the genetic code? You know, at what point do you say this is a gene, this is not a gene? I don't know, but nevertheless, having this definition of gene, I'm sure, is is helpful for biologists and geneticists. I can't comment on that analogy because I don't know biology very well. But it's it's at least useful to be able to group similar geologic bodies as together as planets. For instance, uh, both Earth and Pluto are planets that have active glaciation on the surface. Again, uh, and Mars. And Mars, uh, yeah. Um, Let's see. Uh, Enceladus, Europa, 
Titan, I actually don't know about Titan, but certainly Triton uh, are planets that have double ridges across their surfaces, um, indicating perhaps icy spreading centers. Um, yeah. Venus and Titan are both Aeolian planets, or planets with wind-blown sand on the surface. Uh, so just having this as uh, a word that allows us to categorize uh, similar objects together has a utilitarian purpose. And at a more philosophical level, humans like to uh, bring order out of cha- bring order out of chaos, uh, and, and that's part of the, the process of, of, of classification and identifying things. Um, and one way we do that is by grouping geologically similar objects. Um, things that are round all have something in common. They have enough gravity to overcome the strength of their materials. That's something they have in common, and that's something that can be used as a basis of comparison between them, and that aids communication. So that's on the one hand. That's on the scientific sense, Stuart. But then I'm also very passionate about um, non-scientists becoming scientifically literate, as you so kindly read in my bio. And I have found um, that what you call an object affects people's uh, sense of attachment to it or interest in it. Um, our abstract starts out with uh, the saying that we get the question or a similar type of question, why did you send New Horizons to Pluto if it's not a planet anymore? That breaks my scientific heart. As if Pluto, as if what we call things um, affects what they are, and I think you would agree with me on that, that what we call things does not affect what they are. Nevertheless, it affects how we think about them, and it affects how we communicate that to the general public and how we garner their support ultimately for more dollars flowing into NASA and I would even argue into NASA's planetary science division so that we continue to have exciting missions out into the solar system and have the money to fund the analysis of the scientific data that comes back. So it's a sociological, so it's a scientific problem for professionals. It's a sociological issue to have a scientifically literate and scientifically enthusiastic public and it's a financial issue so that we garner the support to continue to fund this incredible exploration of the solar system. I do agree that uh, the I'm going to say the semantics issue of what you call something does affect people's interest in it. I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing, but I do agree that that is true. Uh, I'm going to saying if it's a good or bad thing, it just exists. (laughs) That's how we live, and I'm just going to work within that framework. I'm not going to fight that. Yeah, Uh, although I I do think that it is important, uh, at least for me to say at this point as a disclaimer, that uh, this podcast is completely separate from any work. It is completely independent of the New Horizons mission, does not have any endorsement of such, and by Swery, NASA, whatever, everyone else. This is Or just... John Hopkins University. Yes. Kirby and I are doing this on our own time, and our opinions are our, our own. <laughs> Correct. Uh, you know, just, just in case. I like what you were talking about with grouping by processes, because that that's actually where I was going to go next, is... At least when I taught Introduction to the Solar System, I didn't teach really uh, the classic way of saying, okay, this is the sun, this is Mercury, this is Venus. I taught by this is a star, and then I went away because this class subject wasn't about stars. But then I said, okay, we're going to talk about differentiation. All right, let's look at all the bodies in the solar system that are differentiated, meaning that they are large enough such that they've separated out into sort of layers of material by density. And then let's talk about volcanoes. And so then I could mm-hmm. talk about Earth and Venus and Mars and then all of these, what I would call, moons in the outer solar system that uh, where we've seen volcanic-like activity where we can discuss cryovolcanoes, 
potentially. Mm -hmm. And then I said, okay, let's talk about tectonics. And then you can bring in Ganymede as well as Earth, as well as not Mars. And then what happens with Venus because it has uh, basically a, a, a stable thing, a stagnant lid, and it's kind of weird. And what happens when tectonics don't happen, but you have a bunch of heat buildup? Let's talk about impact cratering. You know, a mm -hmm. subject near and dear to my heart. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I talked about it by terms of processes rather than by the object's name. And it almost right. seemed like when you were talking about what a planet is that uh, under your proposal, you then said, well, then it's all of these different things. We can talk about these different processes. And I'm almost wondering then again, I'm going to go back to, well, sort of at least scientifically, what's the utility of calling anything from Jupiter down to Enceladus, but not Vesta, a planet, when most of us, at least in the scientific field, let's, you know, not talk about the public at the moment, and, mm -hmm. and the sentiments, I guess, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. most of okay. us in the scientific field, think more about these things in terms of a process as opposed to what an actual planet is. And I'm curious what you think about that. Let me think about that for a second. Okay. I didn't <laughs> um, send you this question ahead of time. <laughs> right. So I guess, again, what's the utility in okay. when we normally, at least these days, in the scientific field, talk more about things in terms of processes as opposed to classification by an arbitrary designation of a planet, a moon, or whatever? It aids in communication. It, it allows for more concise sentences that I think are more easily discernible than jumping back and forth between using the phrases a planet or planetary body has this process going on. That's just cumbersome to say. Um, it's much easier to just say planets like Mars and Titan have sand dunes. That's well, just speak, easier to say. But I would say. say bodies. Or I would yeah, say planetary I, bodies. Or I think that's – it's it's vague and mushy. I, you know, Stuart, you do you. That's great. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> okay. It's, it's going to come down to personal professional preference at some level, and I'm totally comfortable with that. Um I'm going to say planets like Mars and Titan have active sand dunes, um, and at some point in Mars, yeah, I'm going to say planets like Mars and Titan um, because I'm comparing similar processes. Um, if you don't want to do that, that's fine. I don't like the word body because it's vague. Uh, here's an anecdote. Uh, I was talking to someone once about my study of impacts on airless bodies, and she thought I said hairless bodies. <laughs> very, very different <laughs> connotation. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I'm not going to use the word uh, – I don't like using the word bodies in such a generic sense. I'd rather say something that's more specific. So I, I prefer specificity um, when I speak, and if you don't care, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, um, I would I, still say – personally, I would still say planetary bodies. I, I rarely say bodies. I think I more often say planetary bodies. Like I study craters on planetary bodies in the solar system from Mars to the moon to this, that, and the other thing. I don't say I study craters on bodies. And I also don't say I study craters on planets. I also don't say I, I – so, sometimes if I want to sound impressive, I say I study craters on planets and moons and asteroids and comets, you know, just to make it seem more impressive. But that's right. much more rare. So, I, yeah, just for the sake of conciseness – and that's fine, Stuart. I would – and I also study impact cratering, but on a, kind of a, a little bit of a different take than you do. But right. I would still say that – I study impact cratering on planets and asteroids because I'm not going to get into it here, but I would rather lump everything that's lumpy and bumpy into the one category asteroid and have subcategories from there. We don't have to get into that now, but I like a solar system that has planets and asteroids and you have subclass subdivisions from there. And so I've studied impact cratering on, uh, on asteroids and I've studied impact cratering on moons, which I believe are also planets if they're round. Um, I've also studied impact cratering on Phobos, which is an asteroid orbiting Mars. It's an, it's an asteroid moon or moon asteroid. 
And, and so that's just the way that I like to speak because it, it helps convey the way I think about the solar system, how I categorize things. And if that's different from other people, that's fine. But I think a lot of people would probably think similarly um, to me and probably a lot to you too, and that's okay. I'm, I'm totally comfortable having uh, different usages by different scientists. I guess that then naturally segues into what is the utility if there is different usage? So one of the uh, whole purposes of uh, classification, categorization, is so that if you use a term, everybody knows what you're talking about. So for example, if I say the word bacteria, you instantly know that I'm talking about a class of organisms that's generally single cellular that can infect the human body and cause bad things, but also lives in the human body and does good things and also makes us cheese and you know, all of these other things. So, but when I say the word bacteria, you know but what I mean. But you're also excluding a class uh, of organisms if... called archaea that are similar, but you probably meant it without realizing it. Perhaps. I'm not a biologist. Okay, let me, let me use a different example. If I say the word potato chip, you yes. know what I mean. It is a class of things that come from a potato that is deep fried and then can have various flavorings on it and tastes good, but I shouldn't be eating right now. Again, it's the case of we have in a lot of things, the purpose of a classification system is so that everybody knows what you're talking about really easily mm -hmm. when you say it. Whereas you just said that you have your definition of a planet and you're okay with other people using a different definition. So then... I might again go back to the question of what is the actual utility if you have different people using different definitions? Again, I would say it's 80% it's of something is better than 100% of nothing. Uh, okay. If you have a definition that's used by a lot of people, and I think the geophysical definition is used by a lot of people, um, then, then that's good, even if it doesn't reach 100% of the population. You know, I would think that the IAU definition of planet, which says that the solar system has eight planets, that's going to be useful for a group of people, and that's fine, but I think it's going to be a much smaller group of people, and I don't think it's going to have as big of a public, uh, a positive public impact as the geophysical definition of planet. Um, so I'm not saying that everyone has their own definition and that's okay. I'm saying, you know, there's going to be small variations, but there's going to be a generally agreed upon definition or a couple definitions, and, and, and I think that's okay. Um, it's sort of like someone, if you order a mocha, is it hot chocolate or is it coffee? You know, some people might say, I want a hot chocolate, so they go get a mocha. The other person say, I need some coffee, so they go get a mocha. Again, we get into the issue of messiness in nature, and, and there's still agreed upon criteria in the case of, of my silly mocha I example. I use potato chips, so mocha works <laughs> fine. Okay, okay, get your sweet and your salty at the same time, and caffeine. With that said, um, I guess actually it would be helpful halfway, th you know, a half hour into this, if uh, you said, what is the IAU definition that sort of sparked this controversy back in 2006? Do you have that handy? Uh, I don't have it handy, but off the top of my head, um, the IAU definition uh, requires that a body directly orbit its star. It requires that it be round and in hydrostatic equilibrium due to self-gravity. And it requires that it has uh, cleared its or cleared the neighborhood of its orbit. Um, the paraphrase that is often used in, in place of that, but what the definition does not say, is that it be a gravitationally dominant object. And that definition may actually be useful for uh, scientists uh, like such as Mike Brown, who's a great scientist, and he and I have had very amiable email conversations, even though we disagree professionally. Mm -hmm. I, I admire the guy greatly. And just for context, because people might not know, Mike Brown is the guy who uh, sort of discovered a lot of the very large other Kuiper Belt objects that really launched this issue back in the early 2000s. Correct. 
And so for people who study orbits and who people who study gravitational perturbations on other bodies, the IAU definition may be perfectly useful. Again, the IAU definition is mostly based on extrinsic properties, its orbit and the gravitational effects on other objects. Whereas the geophysical definition is more suitable for people who mostly study those individual objects and are concerned with the intrinsic properties. And so again, the IAU definition may be fine, but it's not useful scientific nomenclature for myself and other, pla- other geoscience-aligned planetary scientists, planetary geologists and geophysicists and spectroscopists. So again, it's a, it's a quest for useful scientific nomenclature within a scientific community. I'm also perfectly happy with not overturning the IAU's definition as long as there's a separate definition that is equally accepted as being quote-unquote official. It serves a disservice to the non-scientific public if you say, if you give you the impression that science is dictated from the top down by a governing body composed of votes. Yeah, That's I, not I, science. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure if you know this, but I definitely do have issues with the IAU's definition and the way the IAU uh, handled this because it really gave the impression that science is done by voting and it's given from on high from a group of elites, which is something that at least in skepticism, sort of my little niche in uh, public outreach, Mm -hmm. I really try to show that we don't do, that it is not an ivory tower thing where a bunch of people sit up there and declare what is true and what is not true. And the IAU totally screwed that up by doing this thing. And I think that the idea of uh, something needing to have cleared its orbit is not helpful for geophysicists, at least, because uh, I think that, you know, Alan Stern has said, it's basically the, the idea of, if you take one object from one location in the solar system, it will have cleared its orbit. But if you move it farther out, it will not have cleared its orbit over right. the lifetime of the solar system. And it doesn't pass the Spock test or the Star Trek test where it's, you know, you should on be able screen, to... And a round object comes up on the view screen and everyone just intrinsically knows that it's a planet. Right. You know, is this or is this not a planet? You should be able to tell pretty easily without having and to it's... do orbital integrations for the next few billion years. <laughs> right. And implicit, not stated, but implicit in, in, in Alan's... Uh, uh, analogy of if you take Earth and move it to the Kuiper Belt, it will not have cleared its orbit, is the idea that we should be focused on intrinsic properties, not extrinsic properties. That's an implicit assumption in, in, in that statement. Now, I will mention that Phil Metzger, who is a planetary scientist at University of Central Florida, he has been wonderfully coming up with uh, literally dozens in the uh, of peer-reviewed scientific papers that refer to Titan and Europa as planets. Uh, in the case of Titan, he's found 27, and these are papers that span decades, both before and after the IAU's decision. And he has similarly found dozens of papers referring to Europa, both pre- and post-IAU de- uh, decision, as a planet. And so all that shows is that there is this implicit, implicit because it's not explicitly stated, but consensus in the planetary science community that these round geophysical worlds orbiting other planets are themselves also planets. Feel free to disagree. That's fine. I'm just saying that there's lots of consensus and usage behind that. And insofar linguistically as usage defines definitions, the usage of the word planet has already said for decades that round moons orbiting other planets are planets. Well, so I I will question that a little bit in the sense of you say consensus. Uh, So you said that he's found a couple dozen examples. How many examples has he found where they don't refer to it as a planet, where they refer to it as a moon or something else? Because it's only, I would argue, that only if 
it actually is a you know, 90 plus percent thing, would it be a consensus in terms of its usage? Now, I, I can perfectly agree that it has been used then, uh, the usage of the term before and after the IU redefinition would say that, okay, people have thought of these as planets and use that term in their scientific work. Uh, but I do take question about the term consensus. Okay, maybe consensus is the wrong word, but there's certainly precedence. Okay, that um, I, I have no problem with, with okay, saying. So but yeah, also, when we talk about consensus, you know, I'm worried about things sure. like and, global warming, climate change, consensus. and Yeah, people, yeah that doesn't yeah. affect whether it's true or not, right. Um, certainly these papers also refer to Europa and Titan or and other moons as moons, which they are. I would say they're moon planets. They're moons and they're planets, or they're moon planets. Um, I'm not taking away the moonness of anything. I'm just also including some of them as planets. Oftentimes they're referred uh, alternate, alternately as planets or moons. There's a little bit of substituting one word for another there, but no one's calling them. I don't think anyone's going out of the way to say the non-planet Europa has ice tectonics or whatever. No one's going out of the way to say call it a non-planet. They might call it a moon or a planet, but they're not going to call it a non-planet. I've never. I've, have you ever seen that in a paper, Stuart? I haven't. I, I have never seen. That no, I've never seen okay. someone say that the non-planet blah 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 unless they were trying pot- potentially to make a political point, right, um, right? But but with that, it leads into another question that I have, um, and a couple of these actually I, I should say have been uh, from listeners to the podcast because I I posted on the Facebook page for the podcast and I said you know, I'm going to be interviewing you. Uh, does anyone have any questions they'd like me to ask? So uh, this is actually from another listener who pointed out the issue of intuitiveness i guess so one of the um the reasons for this is that you said that you think it's more intuitive to think of these as a planet but and the whole public interest of what is a planet what is not a planet that kind of thing but it almost seems counterintuitive then to say that all of these objects that we have thought of as moons versus a planet a lot of them you're now classifying as a planet and to me, and this listener, uh, it does seem a little bit counterintuitive then. I think actually in in the email when you initially sent this out and I responded, I said, wait, so you're saying that all of these moons are planets? And you said yes. And I said, oh, okay, I'm not so sure about that. And so I'm curious in terms of what you think about the intuitiveness. Now let's go away from the scientific community and more towards the public. When you go to that third grade class do you think it's actually more intuitive to tell the the school children that yes, the moon, our moon, is a planet? Uh, all sure. I guess not around the ones around Mars, but you know, all these moons around Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, these are planets also. And you think yeah, that that's helpful in terms of getting across what's going on? Yeah, a couple things to that. One is we're making comparisons. Both Earth and the moon are rocky, round worlds. Um, and so the word planet can be used to group that together. I also wonder, Stuart, if you're using intuition, if, you, if by intuition you really mean uh, what you're accustomed to. Now, if you were raised from a young age up to the present of moons are not pla- round moons are not planets, then it may seem, quote unquote, non-intuitive, or really it's just something you're not used to. Whereas if you start it with a young child, they don't have a preconceived notion. And so, yeah, maybe it's completely intuitive to say, yeah, the moon's just a small planet that orbits our planet. I would I agree that with that, that intuitive sense. in terms of my intuition, in this case, yes, it is based on what I was raised with. So are you saying that you sort of, it's it's like, a, I don't mean to, to say this in a negative way, but it's like a religion. You want to get them young now at this point with your definition so that it will seem as they reach adulthood that, yes, of course, these are just planets. 
and there's right. no issue. Whereas I would suspect that pretty much you know, most people who are you know, maybe over the age of 15 or not scientists, not planetary geologists or geophysicists, would not think of Earth's moon as a planet. And it's okay to change your perception. Like when I tell people, yeah, the moon's a planet, they, they kind of, their eyes widen a little bit. They kind of stand back and they like, they put their hand on their hips like, okay, yeah, I can kind of see that. It's a small planet orbiting our planet. It gets them to think, uh, it gets them to think critically and to evaluate uh, the, the properties of an object in nature. And as a scientist, that makes my heart sing. Um, like, yeah, let's, let's actually not take the moon in the sky for granted. Let's think about it. What is it? Takes it by surprise a little bit. Like, oh. But, but then there's kind of like, oh, yeah, I can see why that makes sense. Small stars can orbit big stars, and both are still stars. Why can't small planets orbit big planets and both still be planets? Grammatical continuity and consistency would, would suggest that, that moon planets are also planets uh, in that sense. And also in terms of being concerned with intrinsic properties, why do you care what it's orbiting? What if it's floating freely in the galaxy, uh, ver- orbiting a star or orbiting a planet? That doesn't change I mean, it'll change its tidal interactions for sure, but it doesn't change its intrinsic properties of it still being, you know, this this the single discrete object. I, I so just getting think, to intrinsic I, I properties. I agree, yeah. it doesn't change it intrinsically, but in terms of at least my, we'll say, more than twenty-five-year-old intuition, um, I don't. Uh, yeah, just intuitively, I don't think of any of these. What I would say, moons are. I don't think of them as planets. Again, I, I get back to, at least for me, uh, which you said you're fine with. You don't really care what I think uh, but in terms of how I use my terminology. But for me, I think of them as uh, you know, planetary bodies. And some of them have, again, getting back to this processes thing, some of them have uh, very interesting processes on their surfaces, uh, which manifest because of internal things. Um, but some of them don't. So for example, Rhea around Saturn is one of its largest spherical moons. And yet it shows pretty much no surface geology whatsoever other than, you know, exogenic, uh, impact cratering. Whereas you have smaller moons around Saturn, like Enceladus, which, uh, do display a lot of interesting surface geology in part driven due to, well, not in part, probably entirely driven by tidal interactions with, uh, the other moons in Saturn. So, Again, for me, but I, I don't think of those as planets. I think of them as moons around Saturn, and they display or can display interesting planetary geophysics. I don't know. It, I, I haven't thought through that entirely, but again, at least for well, my intuition, I don't think mm-hmm. of them as planets. I, again, I don't think that's your intuition. I think that's your, what you're accustomed to. True, true. But I guess intuition comes from what you're accustomed to in some way. Perhaps. You know, a little bit potato-potato. Uh, yeah. I agree, they're, they're, they're moons, but they are moon planets. Um, <laughs> so you would so. basically, if, if we were to draw a tree, what you're effectively arguing for is something like a star on one side, on one very big branch, planet in one very big branch, asteroid in one very big branch. And then on the planet branch, that branches out into something like moon planets, I guess. And then, So yeah, moon planets, okay. terrestrial planets, giant planets. Ice giant planets like Uranus and Neptune, mm-hmm. dwarf planets, icy dwarfs, probably some other adjectives you could come up with too. Yeah, absolutely. And there's tons of precedents for that. Like just with stars, you've got the spectral classes O, B, A, F, G, K, M, which are then subdivided numerically where they are spectrally. That's even then subdivided into whether or not they're, they're pre-main sequence, main sequence, or post-main sequence stars. So yeah, there's tons of subdivision in science. And that's not 
that's not just the case with the space sciences, with astronomy and planetary science. That's certainly true in biology uh, and ecology um, and, and physics. Yeah, no, I have so, no problem with, with that kind of subdivision. I'm just, I'm not, maybe I didn't read your abstract closely enough. I don't remember seeing that in the abstract about the Oh, that's not the abstract. Okay, so, phew, I didn't come unprepared. All right, so yeah, I, I the, the idea of the subdivision I have no issue with, and perhaps maybe people would take less umbrage with the term planet if you were actually showing, okay, this is actually, what I'm proposing is almost like a phylogenetic tree, where planet is the root and then there are all these branches of subclassifications. I'm going to write that down, Stuart. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, just for copyright purposes, I'm actually working on a, a project like this, but not with that terminology. So. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's probably how. That's certainly how I'd use the word planet. As such, you're not going to hear me going around saying there's exactly 110 planets in the solar system. No. I mean, we haven't discovered everything, and. There's lots of subdivision. In, in terms of like comparing end members, Jupiter and Enceladus, those are certainly end members. Enceladus is about as small as you can be and still be around. Uh, Jupiter At least for ice. is big. It, and they're made out of completely different things, but they both have enough self-gravitation to overcome the strength of their composite materials and be around. So that's about the extent of their similarities. Nevertheless, they're both planets. But I would call in geology, we have this idea of end members, and I would say they're end members of planetary status. Um, and that's okay. I mean, if you look at petrologists and mineralogists on Earth who study rocks, if you have so much olivine and so much pyroxene and so much feldspar, especially uh, plagioclase feldspar, you, you, you might have a basalt, if, which cooled at the surface or near the surface of a planet. As you go deeper and deeper and the crystals get bigger and bigger, all of a sudden you stop calling it a basalt and you start calling it a gabbro. Or uh, you start altering the ratios of olivine, pyroxene, and feldspar, and all of a sudden it's a norite. It's not basalt anymore, or it's a noritic gabbro. And you start, you, so you have end members and variation in between. Nevertheless, they're both. They're all of the things I'm talking about are all mafic rocks, just like Jupiter and Enceladus. Very different, but they're both planets. Okay, and I guess to restate my own position, I actually don't really care. <laughs> I, I think right. that it is an exercise, sort of almost almost in futility just in the sense that now it's gotten so politically charged that i think anything is is going to be met with a lot of um resistance shall we say from certain people uh, but with that said actually i think um perhaps because i don't want to keep you that much longer uh perhaps an interesting way to tie this up a little bit is what kind of reaction have you been getting uh because in general the, at least the few couple stories that i saw have really been more of the, wow, this is kind of interesting, but then you sent me one where uh, it was actually a fairly negative uh, reaction. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the reaction that you've gotten. Right. It's been mostly positive, and most people seem fairly accepting of it. One thing that I try to overcome is the idea that the IAU has to rule on this. I don't care if they rule on this or not. They don't need to for it to be an official definition. Uh, so people have this weird fixation on authority that I think is misplaced. So that's part of it. There is an article on Forbes.com that says why Pluto will never be a planet, and I'll note that it was written by an astrophysicist. When I sent him the list of 27 papers that refer to just Titan as a planet, he's like, well, I guess astronomers and planetary scientists just have different definitions. And I said, yes, exactly. That's my point. Let's ag we can agree to disagree, because we're, and, and that's fine. We, I, I'm fine with the fact that some astronomers and most planetary scientists are going to have to agree to disagree on the definition of planet. I'm cool with that. I know some people aren't, but I am. What was the astrophysicist's issue with it? He says, 
how so his issue was really grouping similar objects together. But again, he was thinking like an astronomer or an astrophysicist. He was thinking about gravitational perturbations. He's like, you can't possibly group Pluto in with Jupiter because Jupiter's so gravitationally dominant and Pluto gets knocked around by Neptune's gravity. That's a very true statement. That is true. But he was only thinking from an extrinsic perspective. He wasn't thinking about intrinsic perspectives. And so he was saying from an astrodynamical and gravitational perspective, you can't group Pluto and Jupiter together. I agree. Nevertheless, from a geophysical perspective, you can. They're both made out of geophysical fluids and in, 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 uh, hydrostatic equilibrium. Those are just differences in perspective. I'm a geologist. He's an astronomer. I get it. That's fine. Makes sense. I'm not hating on astronomers. I'm <laughs> colleagues with them. They're my friends. I love what they do. We just think about the world in different, but I would say complementary ways. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, as, I, as we said, 20 minutes ago or so, that part of the IU definition is one of my biggest issues in terms of that it has to clear its orbit kind of thing, where, sure. which seems to be where he's coming from in terms of Jupiter being so gravitationally dominant versus Pluto. Uh, but again, that's sort of where they are in the solar system. And I don't think that that should matter in terms that's of... That's where they are. That's not what they are. Right. Okay. Anything else that you'd like to convey or get across? Uh, anything from the dozens of other interviews that uh, you've done that I may have missed that uh, you think is important? Well, not quite dozens of other interviews. Thank you for the flattery. But again, I just want to point out, and, and we, we're targeting uh, this, this abstract, and this is not a proposed definition of planet. This is a definition of planet that we use and that other people already use. And I would encourage teachers to teach this uh, as one legitimate definition of planet um, and not be so fixated on the supposed authority of the IAU. Um, I would like curriculum developers, textbook writers, and children's book authors and illustrators to, to get this perspective of planet because I really want to help kids become excited about how many planets there are in the solar system and just our solar system, not to even mention all the other planetary systems like the TRAPPIST-1 system with at least seven planets. In our poster that we're going to have at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference and the abstract that we, that we wrote and that's been getting all the attention is specifically targeted in the education and public outreach section of, of, of LPSC mm -hmm. because I want to engage teachers and ultimately students, young students, uh, with this way this mind-opening way of thinking about the solar system. And I also want to thank you, Stuart, for your interest. Yeah, well, I, I am interested, uh, even though I said I don't care. I, I sure. mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I am interested in the topic, but I don't really care what's done with it in the sense of I, I think that it is somewhat semantics and you're never ever going to please everyone with it. Sure, uh, so I, I just I accept that. Yeah, so I just choose to not not deal with it. Um, but with that said, actually, I do have another question that I just thought of. Why do you think it's gotten so much attention uh, when I will say that I have seen other proposals for the definition of a planet at LPSC before? And along with that, and we can cut this out if you'd like, do you think perhaps that one of the reasons why this has gotten so much attention is because Alan Stern's name is on it, not only as the principal investigator of New Horizons, but also as someone who has publicly had disagreements with the International Astronomical Union before? Um, I think having Alan's name um, behind this uh, certainly helps our cause. I think a couple other reasons why our abstract has garnered so much attention is that we use, for, for the actual definition that we, that we use, we used a bigger font and stuck it in the middle of the page, so it's hard, you can't miss it. <laughs> We're also targeting it uh, for education and public outreach. We're also... Um, 
putting an angle on this that is more accessible to the general public and not just scientists. For instance, we actually make explicit statements like there are at least 100 dead planets in the solar system. The moon counts as a planet. Um, we're very clear. We, we break it down. Instead of being very high-level and theoretical and leaving the inferences up to the audience, again, we break it, out, we break it down. Uh, you know, because we say the orbit doesn't matter, we then explicitly state moons are also planets. There's 110 planets. It's, and then we give classroom examples of how to teach this within the abstract. So I think, so I purposefully, and, and we and the co-authors made this ex- very accessible to anyone who's interested in this topic. I think that's one reason it's gotten attention. Although certainly having um, Alan's uh, name attached to this has certainly helped get, garner attention too. Um, leveraging his uh, his celebrity status, which has been, um, which is, it's very kind of him to offer that. And I know this, this issue is also very important to him. Yes, yes. As I said, he's he's publicly had disagreements about this issue with the International Astronomical Union. So, I, I wondered if that was it because in some of the articles that I had seen, uh, you know, usually you were quoted a lot because you're the lead author, but sometimes I didn't see your name at all and I just saw Alan's. So yeah, I thought that um, might be some of the issue. That is some of the issue, yes. Uh, and I also just want to mention that Alan has been a fantastic mentor to me. Um, you, you know, he's been very kind to me and it's it's a it's an honor to get to call him a colleague. I will say something similar. Alan has been great in terms of bringing me on with the New Horizons mission, and it actually pretty much saved my career in planetary science uh, because mm. I was not uh, being very successful, well, not successful at all, with getting grants. And uh, there was a, a request out for someone to help with some of the New Horizons planning, and I put in my name, and, well, for, no, three years later, uh, I'm now a trainee project scientist on the mission, so... Oh, That's very cool. Congratulations. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Alan's been great. I have, uh, you know, no professional disagreements with him. This particular issue for me is less of an issue uh, than mm-hmm. it is for some people. So uh, with that said, uh, I before I get myself into trouble... I think that uh, I think that's about it from me. Unless there's anything else from you, uh, I'm going to say thank you for coming on. And, uh, well, good luck at LPSC. And I'll be interested to know what kind of reaction that you get from people seeing the poster. Yes, thank you, Stuart. All right. That wraps up this topic for the 159th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you can send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. If you have a comment, please leave it on the page for the episode on the website, or on the blog post for the episode, or on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me at pseudoastro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, please also tell your friends and family and random people that you might never meet in real life.